Welcome to Nature Revisited, the podcast. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and on this episode, we are joined by Christopher Preston, the author of the new book, Tenacious Beasts, Wildlife Recoveries That Change How We Think About Animals. Christopher Preston is a writer, public speaker, and professor of environmental philosophy at the University of Montana. In his book, Christopher writes of an optimistic future with wildlife and how he envisions a fresh way to live alongside the natural world. It is a book of optimism and surprise about our future shared with our animal kin. But first, a word from our sponsor. Prairie Restorations is excited to sponsor today's episode of Nature Revisited. Founded in 1977 as one of the first native garden centers in the country, Prairie Restorations has grown and expanded the diversity of our native plants and services. Our mission is to produce and provide the most ecologically appropriate seeds, plants, products, and services to restore and manage native plant communities. Shop our online garden center and receive 10% off your order when you use promo code Nature Revisited. Be the change. Be a native gardener and help restore critical native habitat. Visit prairieresto.com to shop the highest quality native seeds and plants. That's prairieresto.com. Again, that's prairieresto.com. Now back to your show. So, Christopher, thank you for joining me on Nature Revisited to talk about your latest book. I am thrilled to have you on the podcast to share the ideas behind this book and your own personal story that led to it. So let's go back a bit. You are originally from England, if I am correct. What led you from England to being a professor of environmental philosophy at the University of Montana? Well, thanks for asking. Thanks for having me on. I did my undergrad degree at Durham in northeastern England. Mm -hmm. And when we got to the end of the degree, all my friends and colleagues were putting on suits and saying, now I've got to get on with life. And they were going to go down to London. They were going to work in insurance and the law and those sorts of things. And I wasn't ready for that. I had visited the United States a few years previously, and I loved the mountains. And I wanted an opportunity to live in those Rocky Mountains in the West. And so I poked around for things I could do in the United States. I found out I could go to graduate school, and I found out there was this thing called environmental philosophy. And I figured that sounds pretty interesting, sitting in beautiful locations, contemplating wild places and wild animals. So I signed up for a graduate degree at Colorado State University. And as always happens, one thing led to another, led to another graduate degree in Oregon. It led to some time up in Alaska. And then I had to look for a job. And when a philosophy job in Montana showed up, I thought, that's got my name all over it. So that's where I ended up. 
somewhere in there, you were once a commercial fisherman. How has that experience influenced all the work you have done since then? Yeah, so when I was in graduate school, I asked a few people, what do you do in the summer around here? Somebody mentioned, oh, people go to Alaska. And I thought, well, that sounds like a lot of fun. So I went up to Alaska, hitchhiked down to Valdez, and before long, I ended up on a fishing boat. Initially, I was working in a fishery called Herring Row on kelp. There was lots of things about those experiences that really changed my life, just incredible people, incredible landscapes. But something that really made a difference for me is that I recognized environmental philosophy was not something that you did in universities necessarily. It was something you did on the landscape. It was about thinking through your relationship with your surroundings and how you used your surroundings. And so I realized that those fishermen and women I was interacting with were as much environmental philosophers as I was, even though I was at a university going through the credentialing process. I was no more an environmental philosopher than any of they were. So I think that left its mark on me in the sense that when I did become a professional philosopher and a writer, I realized that I needed to be speaking to people who work on the land, whose income depended on the land, and whose relationships revolved around relationships with animals. So those experiences were, they were spectacular experiences in the sense of being in places like Prince William Sound and Bristol Bay. But they also changed how I thought about what I do and how I thought about the audiences for what I write and what I say. How do you see some of the differences between how the UK and the United States perceives the idea of protecting wildlife? Yeah, it's a good question. And in a way, that's been really at the heart of my explorations of these areas. So I spent 22 years of my life in a landscape that was very heavily managed and frankly, stripped bare of all of its large animals. And one of the attractions of coming out west and first going to Colorado and then to Alaska was to be on bigger landscapes. So for me, that was exciting. This was a whole new world. It was a place that offered me something that I hadn't really seen before, I hadn't really experienced before. And then every time I went back to the UK and I maybe walked in the woods and saw a bunny rabbit or saw a fox, I would think, well, where are the big animals? When my dad visited me when I was first out in Montana, we were heading out of town to go fishing somewhere. And there was a large herd of deer on the side of Mount Jumbo, which is one of the mountains on the edge of Missoula here. And my dad's automatic reaction as an Englishman was, oh, look at those deer. Someone will need to come manage those pretty soon. Whereas I was learning this new aesthetic of wildlife on the landscape, mostly managing themselves. I mean, we have wolves and we have cougars that do the deer management around here. And so this different philosophy in the United States presented an alternative to me, which at the time was very exciting. 30 years later, what's really exciting is to see back in the UK, where I learned my original. Uh, philosophies of, of wildlife and animals, 
they're starting to wake up to the ideas of rewilding, the ideas of bringing big animals back, and the ideas of letting nature run its own course. So it's been a weird boomerang type of experience for me, heading west for the big animals and the wildness, and then looking back to Europe now, 30 years later, and seeing some changes over there as people come to appreciate the big wild in a way that I don't think was appreciated when I left that part of the world. What motivated you to write this book? And why did you choose the examples you did? So I had been working in issues related to big, powerful new technologies for a number of years. I'm an ethicist, so I consider proper ways and improper ways to interact with our surroundings. And I've been focused quite a bit on technologies that were transforming our surroundings. And these were technologies like nanotechnology, biotechnology, climate engineering, these real planet-altering technologies which are going to change the trajectory of our future. And so I was hearing this constant drumbeat of control, engineering, manipulation, replacing the natural world with an artificial world. And I knew that there was some reason to do some of those things, but this idea of control sat wrong with me. And furthermore, what I noticed is that in every attempt to control, there was always something that pushed back in the world. There was always something that did not want to do our bidding, did not want to lay down and succumb to human domination. And often what that was, was something in biology, something in the living world that was unpredictable, that created surprise, and that pushed back against our best laid plans. So my ears perked up when I thought about, hmm, what's biology doing here? Why is biology so resistant to our human attempts to engineer? Now, at the same time as all of this engineering was taking place or all of these engineering promises, I started to notice stories about animals that were recovering. So we live in what they call the Anthropocene, the human age, and yet even in this human age, there were species starting to come back. So I was putting all this together, this resistance that biology has, and these recoveries of species. And I thought, there's a story to tell here. There's a story to tell about how even in the Anthropocene, wildlife presses back against us and pushes against our designs and our desires. And I think that's a hopeful story. So what I was seeing here was hope. I was seeing possibilities. And I was seeing visions that I thought could inspire about how to occupy the landscape, live on the land in a way that lets wildlife flourish rather than just sees the endless progression of human design. And you were very successful in your book. I really enjoyed it. But I, I think I would like to take a moment before we continue on to the next question you emphasize it in your book that we need to be very clear that there are a lot of species who are in grave danger. Can you just address that before we move forward? Yes, this is a very important caveat that 
everybody who reads my book should be aware of. I portray some good news on the biodiversity front, but that good news appears against the backdrop of what is generally a very tough picture for wildlife. A number often put out there is that a million species are threatened with extinction. If I chart 15 or 20 of them that are doing well and that are recovering, that doesn't take away from the fact that that leaves close to a million that are still struggling. And so these good news stories are not intended to cast doubt on the biodiversity crisis. But what they are intended to do is to show us that there is another possibility out there, that other possibility that animals, if we play it right, if we take the right steps, animals can show a remarkable resilience and a remarkable capacity to bounce back. And I think an illustration of that was during COVID when we all disappeared into our homes. And what did we see? We saw animals showing up in villages, in cities, walking across pedestrian crossings. We saw bears bathing in fountains in Italian villages. When we took our foot off the gas pedal for just a little while, we were astonished at the resilience of wildlife and how wildlife showed up again. So there are possibilities here, and my book is about exploring possibilities against what might otherwise be a fairly grim biodiversity backdrop. A lot of times, researchers go looking for the answers that they want. But in your book, you have an incredible open mind about what it is that we can learn from these tenacious beasts, which is very refreshing and engaging. Is that something that you made a conscious effort at, or is that simply the way you look at problems? Well, that's a nice question. Obviously, I love animals. I'm in favor of animal recovery. That's what motivates the book. So I have a bias in that sense, if you can call that a bias. I like to think I can look at both sides of an issue. I think I'm both left-brained and right-brained. I have a scientific mind. I actually first went to university to do engineering, and I dropped out of that to go to philosophy. But I also have a creative mind. I try and balance those things. I look for the good and I look for the bad. I try to present these technologies in a way that steer as close to the middle as possible because as an ethicist, you're not really telling people how to think. That's not your business at all. What you're trying to do is to present a situation with as much clarity as possible so that somebody listening or somebody reading can see it for what it is and can make their own mind up in an informed way. And so when I was looking at these wildlife recoveries, I had some biases coming in, of course. I had some assumptions about how I thought we should be treating wildlife and how involved or uninvolved we should be in their lives. But sometimes I found that the particular situations of the different species required something different from what I had assumed coming in. So I tried to remain open to that. I certainly readjusted some of my own conceptions of wildlife and our most desirable interactions with them on the basis of what I heard from the people who knew those situations best. You start the book with the wolf. 
an animal that has been vilified over the course of history that suddenly appeared in the Netherlands after a century and a half. Why is the story of the wolf so important? And what are some of the lessons we should be learning from it? Well, I went back and forth about whether to start the book with the wolf. The wolf is really a lightning rod on this question of how to live alongside animals. Teddy Roosevelt called the wolf the beast of waste and desolation. And the wolf is such a provocation in different parts of the world. Out here in Montana, where I live, the wolf is always causing controversy. But in the end, I did put the wolf right there at the front of the book in the first chapter because I thought I stood the best chance of breaking apart prejudices, of having us confront a species which everyone is going to have an opinion on. And if I could present a way of living alongside the wolf, accepting the wolf, rethinking the wolf, because that's a lot of what I want to do in this book, is I want us to rethink animals and how we exist alongside them. If I could do that right at the start, I thought this would set the book up well. So I talk about wolf recovery not in the United States. I mean, the familiar story for everybody, particularly where I live, is the return of the wolf to Yellowstone National Park. I want to talk about the wolf in Europe, not in the United States, in Europe, because the case there is different in interesting and important ways. So here's one way it's different. The wolf has not been reintroduced to any country in Europe. There have been no reintroductions. The wolf has made its own way now into every country in Europe except the United Kingdom. But to every other country in Europe, the wolf has made its own way back across landscapes that are generally becoming a little more forested than they were, landscapes where in some areas agriculture is retreating. The wolf has arrived in some of the most densely populated countries in the world. So the country where most of my wolf stories take place is the Netherlands. The Netherlands is the most densely populated country in Europe. The Dutch people have a very controlling philosophy of the landscape. If you look at the Dutch landscape from above, you see all of the fields with the drainage ditches and the polders, as they call them. It's a very organized landscape. It's very neat. The Dutch railway system is very complete, and it crisscrosses the landscape everywhere. They have all of these bicycle trails. And it is not the kind of place you would imagine an animal like the wolf settling in. But the wolf has settled in there. And the Dutch people are figuring out how to make it work. They have a strong government mandate as part of the EU. They have to welcome any creature that originally lived on a the landscape. They have to welcome it back. So the Dutch have some guidance from the government about how to live with wolves. They have resources that they can use to make their landscape hardened against wolves. So farmers can put up electric fences. They can get subsidies from the government for doing so. And then you've got a population who's very keen to have the landscape be more interesting, be more wild, have animals on it 
that should be on it historically. And so all of these factors come together to present an extraordinary test case. In some ways, if you can have a wolf on a Dutch landscape, you can have it anywhere. And there's a statistic about Europe and wolves that I think is definitely worth hearing from this side of the Atlantic. Europe has half the land area of the contiguous United States. It has twice the people, and it has more than twice the number of wolves as the contiguous United States. And so we've got something like a factor of eight or 10 there in terms of the density of wolves that Europeans are living with compared to the density of wolves that Americans are living with. So there's something important, I think, to learn, see what Europeans are figuring out about the wolf and about how to cohabit with it. How do you define wildness? And how important is it? Since Henry David Thoreau and before, people have been trying to come up with definitions of the wild. One thing that is clear is it doesn't make sense anymore to associate the wild with the untouched. So we live in the Anthropocene. In the Anthropocene, everything is touched. Human influence is everywhere. And you can measure it in terms of pollutants. You can measure it in terms of temperatures. You can measure it in terms of species brought in by people for their own interests and their own needs. So we can't think of the wild anymore as untouched. But the wild is still a very intuitive notion. And for me, the wild has come to mean something along the lines of spontaneity, something in a system that surprises you, that acts outside of your control. And that can be something biological. It could be geological. It could be hydrological. Something in the system that behaves outside of human control and livens up our lives. You could imagine a planet that was very heavily impacted and very heavily manipulated, but would still have spontaneity, would still have surprise, as long as we still have wild animals on the landscape, we still have wildness. And that's something that I have always celebrated, and I believe I'm not alone in celebrating it. Because we are increasingly becoming more and more urbanized, why should someone living in an urban setting really care about what happens to wildlife? So you're right that we're increasingly urbanized. I think it was in 2007 or 2008 that we flipped the switch and more than half of the world's population from that point onwards lived in cities. And that number is only going to go up. We are increasingly urban population. But of course, the city is full of wildlife. You don't get away from wildlife by just living in the city. Think of all of the birds you interact with. Think of how peregrine falcons, who are themselves a tenacious beast, having recovered from near extinction, peregrines seem to be as happy in cities, nesting on skyscrapers and feeding on ducks and pigeons, as they are on remote cliffs. Think of all of the rodents. Think of the insects. Think of the plants that force their way up through a crack in the sidewalk, cities are full of spontaneous biological life. And just occasionally, they're full of some quite dramatically interesting life. So there's coyotes in New York City, for example, and in Chicago. So the idea that cities are places 
without wildlife, the idea that people don't interact with the wild in cities, it's a little bit of a misleading idea. I live in the city. Last night, my wife and I stood out on our back deck and we watched a couple of bats circling urgently around us, cleaning up some insect populations. Cities are full of wildlife, different sorts of wildlife, obviously. And I think the joy and excitement that people experience when they see that spontaneity, when they see something non-human, when they get outside of their human space, just get a glimpse or a taste of the world, of the biological world, the world that doesn't do our bidding. I think that's an incredibly important experience. And I think urban people crave that as much as people who live outside the city. The second beast you focus on in your book is the bison. Once practically diminished, it has rebounded, but with a number of important questions. Explain how the bison has raised the question of authenticity in wildlife, and do the genes need to be pure to be a bison? The bison is a very interesting case study. So from an outside perspective, they've recovered. In 1900, they were down to about 340 animals, according to William Hornaday. So that was down from 60 million. They were teetering on the edge. They were on the precipice. There's now 500,000 of them. So the American Bison Society, which was formed by Hornaday and Roosevelt in the early 1900s, they actually disbanded themselves a few decades later because they said, well, we've won this battle. These bison are back. But as you point out, there's an interesting wrinkle here because the bison that are back are not genetically identical to the bison that existed 500 or 1,000 years ago. And the reason why they're not is that they are infiltrated with cattle genes. Now, they have cattle genes in them because in that bottleneck, when those bison were so few in North America, Ranchers thought, well, before these animals disappear, we need to get some bison genes into our cattle. Because obviously a bison is tough. It knows how to live in a cold environment. It knows how to live in a dry environment. Just minds its own business and keeps on going. So if you can instill inside your cattle some of that strength, some of that tenacity, you're probably going to do better as a cattle rancher. Now, a consequence of this effort to get bison genes into cattle is that hybrid bison, bison that have some cattle genes in them, became more and more common. And the purely wild bison, the ones that have never been anywhere near a cow, became fewer and fewer. And since I finished this book, a study came out suggesting that if you test every wild bison left in the United States, you would find at least some cattle genes in it. Now, if that's true, and that was just one study, then every one of these 500,000 bison that now exist have cattle genes. By some sort of purist standard, where in order to be an authentic bison, you must have only bison genes, by that purist standard, there are no authentic bison left. It presents a conundrum in conservation biology because we thought we'd saved the bison. But maybe what we've saved is something else. We've saved a hybrid. We've saved 
a different animal. Now, the question for the philosopher is, does that matter? Does it matter if this bison still performs the same ecological function, if it still looks like a bison? And they do look like bison. If it looks like a bison, if it performs the same function as a bison, if it performs the same cultural role, and this question comes up when you speak to indigenous people who are bringing bison back onto their reservations. That animal performs the same cultural role. Does it matter? And so this is a place where I mentioned earlier on some of my views changed. I, I was a holdout for this idea of wild authenticity and purity. I had this vision in my mind that these landscapes were untouched and the animals were unaltered. This certainly changed for me. I know more now about the slight illusion of untouched. Landscapes in North America had all been manipulated to some extent by indigenous people. And bison themselves have always been manipulated to some extent by the people that live on these landscapes. The bison that predated modern plains bison, those animals were bigger and they became smaller because they had to adapt to being around humans and to being around a warmer climate. If you're smaller, you can run faster. You can also shed heat quicker. And so the giant bison that were originally on this continent shrank. So bison, 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 the one that we recognize from those iconic pictures of Yellowstone and, and the Great Plains, that bison is already impacted by people. That helped me think about modern bison that may or may not have cattle genes, if they are already impacted by people to some extent, is it necessary to be obsessive about genetic purity? Or can we live with these modern bison that they can still perform the same role on the landscape and the same role in culture? Another point you pointed out in the book, nowhere are they allowed to roam completely free. And that raises the question, how much should we interfere with the lives of wild animals? And at what point do we take away their wildness? It's a fascinating question. It really is. And the bison embodies so many of these challenges. So there's this genetic question, which is one question about bison. But there's also this question of behavior. And as you point out, no bison is allowed to roam completely wild and free. The Yellowstone bison come closest. Obviously, Yellowstone, close to 2 million acres. For the most part, those bison can manage themselves how they wish, but not when they exit the park. When they exit the park, the state of Montana has an agreement with the National Park Service in order that those bison do not roam freely into Montana. So there's this agreement that when those bison leave the park, they are managed. And at the moment, they are mostly managed with a combination of a tribal hunt where animals are taken off of the landscape and they are slaughtered and the meat given to the tribes. Although recently there's been an additional arrangement where some of these bison can get transferred to the Fort Peck Reservation where they are kept in quarantine for two years. The, the key point here is that these bison cannot roam free out of the park and do what they want. Even the Yellowstone bison are not allowed to roam free as a, as a wild 
animal species. And the state of Montana has actually acknowledged that their obligations to restore wildlife have not been fulfilled with the bison. They have not yet fulfilled their obligation to have bison roaming free in the state of Montana. One philosophical question is focused on genetic authenticity. Another philosophical question is focused on behavioral authenticity. Can these bison behave as bison should be behaving? They're supposed to struggle with hunger. They're supposed to struggle against the cold. And then they're supposed to move in order to combat that. They're supposed to wander across a landscape and find a place where they can live successfully. And if you're preventing an animal from doing that, are you preventing it from being that animal? Are you taking the wild out of wildlife? And so the bison really crystallized that, but there's plenty of other cases that come up for me in the book where we might ask ourselves, okay, we've got this animal hanging on. We maybe even got it recovering a little bit, but is it the wild wildlife that we want it to be, or is it forever now yoked to human management? And those are real puzzles, I think, real difficult ones. As a quick sideline, I read somewhere that one of the differences between cattle and bison is that when there's a storm coming, and when a cattle recognizes that storm, it finds shelter. But when a bison recognizes that storm, it heads directly into the storm, through the storm to the other side, that it does not back down. And I found that really amazing, if it's true, and it really speaks to the bison. And it seems plausible that the bison learned that over time and embedded that in their genes as a type of bison wisdom. You also feature the beaver as an example of recovery and the many lessons that it can teach us. What can and should we learn from this very industrious animal? So the beaver plays an important role in my book. Part of what I want to do in this book is present animals that can create a change of mind, can help us think differently about them. Because when an animal recovers, you have to interact with it again. You have to deal with it again. And that's what's happened with the beaver. In the United States, it's back up from about a low of about maybe 100,000 animals. It's now back up to about 15 million. We're interacting with beavers again. We're seeing them places. We're watching them work. We're coming to understand them better. And the beaver is a fantastic case study. The beaver knows how to restore an ecosystem. It has techniques which it fine-tuned over millions of years of evolution. And the species that live around the beaver fine-tuned themselves to coexist with what the beaver was doing. So if we're interested in restoring habitat, if we're interested in restoring ecosystems, we could do a lot worse than look very closely at the beaver. We're obviously long past looking at the beaver as a hairy banknote that gives me a skin to sell. And perhaps we're past looking at the beaver as an interesting rodent who's an active engineer of ecosystems. Maybe we can look at the beaver as an expert and a teacher. And maybe we can even imagine apprenticing ourselves to the beaver 
or enlisting the beaver to help us in the work that we need to do. Let's look at the beaver as a teacher and a helper, and let's have a different attitude towards these very clever rodents. And if I can just add one final thought to that, this attitude of teacher and helper apprenticing ourselves to an animal like a beaver, this of course resonates with the way indigenous people develop attitudes towards the wildlife with whom they share the landscape. They were looking for a long-term relationship with animals so that the animals could do things for them, and in return, they did things back to the animals. So some of these attitudes that I described, they're not new attitudes at all, but they feel new to industrial cultures who perhaps until recently thought that we were the only folk who knew how to engineer rivers. But certainly, if you want to engineer a river, ask what would a beaver do? The next animal that, that you looked at was the spotted owl and how it is being threatened by another owl. So the northern spotted owl creates a real complex viper pit of ethical issues. I looked at some species that recovered completely spontaneously. So the wolf in Europe is a case in point. And I also talked about the humpback whale. And in, in those cases, you've got a species where if you stop killing it, it comes back, period. Stop killing the animal, and the animal will recover. But that's on one extreme. The other extreme is an animal that needs a lot of help, sometimes an extraordinary amount of ongoing help in order to survive. And these species, in the technical jargon, are known as conservation-reliant. Non-spotted owl struggled when old-growth forests in the Northwest were getting taken down. In the 1990s, we did something about that. We did our best to protect what was left of old-growth forests. The Northern Spotted Owl faces another challenge now, and it's the presence of the barred owl. The barred owl, which made its way west on the coattails of white settlers changing the look and the shape of the Great Plains. They did enough alteration to the habitat that barred owls could make it across the country into the Northwest, where they completely outcompete northern spotted owls. They're bigger, they're more aggressive, they have more young, they will kill spotted owls sometimes. Occasionally, they will hybridize with spotted owls, which raises a whole other set of interesting questions. But essentially, where you have barred owls in spotted owl habitat, spotted owl numbers plummet. The only way to keep those spotted owl numbers up is to suppress the barred owl. And suppress here is a euphemism, the euphemism for killing. The only way to keep spotted owl numbers up is to kill barred owls. And I went out in the forest with a technician who had killed over 350 barred owls in order to give spotted owls a chance. And it works. So that's fine, but it raises all sorts of questions. One question is you'd have to go on doing that forever. These barred owls are not stopping arriving in the Northwest. They're here now, and they're going to continue to breed, and they breed very successfully. So you have an ongoing type of management requirement if you go down that route. And then behind that, behind the practical challenges of doing it, there is the philosophical question. 
if this species requires such a heavy hand in order to survive, does it really still count as a species that is successfully living wild on the landscape? Or is it only living because humans are curating the landscape in a certain way so that its primary challenges are getting removed? And if humans are curating the landscape, how is this any better than a zoo? Or how is this any better than a wildlife park where we're creating conditions for something to live because it can't live on its own? And there are difficult questions there to face. These are questions that I find very difficult to answer. They're not simple at all. And then there is the whale and the sea otters and how they are making a difference in our oceans and how they offer a new, which you pointed out isn't necessarily new at all, a new way of thinking, one embedded in indigenous cultures. Talk about the whale and the sea otter for a bit. I love this story about the whales and the sea otters. So I encountered recovering humpback whales in two places, in northern Norway, where they were just filling this fjord in ways that they hadn't done for centuries, and then in Alaska, southeast Alaska, not, not too far from Juneau, where I went out on the water with a whale behavioral ecologist who has a long-running study counting and watching whales that are migrating there from Hawaii into southeast Alaska in order to feed. Now, what this behavioral ecologist had figured out is this astonishing recovery of whales was changing the ecosystem in certain ways. And whales change ecosystems in a number of ways, but one of the most interesting is by moving nutrients around from different parts of the ocean to other parts. And they can do this in a couple of different ways. If it's a whale species that feeds down deep and then comes to the surface to breathe, it can move nutrients from where it eats down deep. But if a whale keeps scooping the nutrients up from the bottom of the ocean in its food, this could be, if you're a sperm whale, it could be in squid. If you're a humpback whale, it could be in herring. You're scooping the nutrients up from one part of the ocean. And then when you poop, you're emitting them in another part of the ocean. You become part of a pump, essentially a nutrient pump. And this is what the whale specialists call it, feeding deep and then coming to the surface. But alongside that, I should mention, feeding in Arctic and Antarctic latitudes and then migrating and breeding, giving birth and relaxing in tropical latitudes. You do the same thing. You move nutrients from those Arctic and Antarctic locations to these tropical locations. If you pump nutrients into ocean water near the surface, you help phytoplankton to bloom. But those nutrients help those phytoplankton to grow and multiply. And those phytoplankton absorb carbon. And once that carbon is in those phytoplankton, it can enter the food chain. The carbon that the phytoplankton are absorbing ends up in fish, ends up when those fish die at the bottom of the ocean. So you have this crazy set of connections which links whales to carbon sequestration. 
And there's a whole new field of study here, and it glorifies by the name of zoo geochemistry. And what that essentially means is the chemistry associated with animals, how animals impact terrestrial or, in the case of whales, ocean chemistry. So there's quite a lot of interest right now in how whales can contribute to the carbon cycle. Whales are making the ocean a healthier place, and as a healthier place, carbon is getting cycled. This story connects with my earlier story about beavers, because what is happening in this case, just as happened in the beaver case, is an animal recovery has led to some science which changes how we think about animals. And in the case of the whale, is that it is on the same side in this climate struggle. Whale recovery is good climate policy. And so just like the beaver, we have an opportunity to rethink our relationship with whales. Why not think of them as partners? And just as with the beaver, there's a connection here to indigenous thought, because the idea of a wildlife species as a partner, that's an idea that is very much recognizable in indigenous cultures. And so that's a happy kind of coincidence, I think, and perhaps a fruitful way to think about whales as we go forward. Some of these species that I looked at, and I looked at them both with Western scientists standing by my side and on some occasions with indigenous people standing by my side, some of what I learned about these animals and some of what I started to feel were appropriate ways to think about these animals had resonance with indigenous ways of being in the world. So to think about beavers as experts who we learn from, to think about whales as partners and allies, all of these resonances, I think, speak to the possibility of there being a moment in time here where there can be some remembering and some learning between settler cultures and settler culture ways of interacting with the world and indigenous ways of interacting with the world. Indigenous people obviously had an interest in creating a long-term sustainable relationship with their surroundings. If you are living off of those surroundings, it is in your interest to figure out how to coexist successfully so those surroundings are fruitful and productive. And I would suggest that settler cultures are just beginning to figure out that a long-term sustainable relationship is what we need to have with our, our surroundings. We've been trying to figure this out for a couple of centuries, during which we've been doing a pretty bad job of living sustainably. So if we're serious about figuring out ways to do that differently, we have a chance now. These animal recoveries give us a chance to figure out a different way. And if we can identify ways that resonate with the ways that the people who, for thousands of years, have been figuring out how to live sustainably alongside the landscape, if we can find those resonances, I think that's a pretty good indication that we're on the right track. This is not about appropriating indigenous knowledge. It's not about stealing ideas. It's about listening and looking 
for commonalities, looking for resonances, and acknowledging that there's a better way to do things. There's two things I think I would like people to take away from this book. The first one, the most important one, the most basic one, is hope. I think I'm done with despair. I want people to have hope. I want people to have a vision. I want people to imagine possibilities for the future. So if the book achieves nothing else, I want it just to lift people's spirits just a tiny bit so they can imagine a better way to live on the planet. And that gets me to the second thing. I want us to have better relationships with the surrounding world. I want us to have better relationships with animals. Too many of the ways we think about animals are relics of the 19th century. I want to have a 21st century way to relate to animals, to learn how to coexist, to learn how to share a landscape. Because I think that'll be a much more exciting and worthwhile future, not just for the animals themselves, but also for us. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Christopher Preston and that you get a chance to read his fascinating book, Tenacious Beasts. If you enjoyed our conversation, please share with friends, family, and colleagues and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube or on our website, NordenProductions.com. The music for Nature Revisited is Buzz and Fly by Tim Buckley. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature. Nature.